Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is Brett Hordes, and um, we're back with a pretty epic show today, I got to tell you. Um, Before I get into my guest today and the topic, um, I think I need to explain a couple of things because it's very relevant to uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So today we are, once again, we're going to be talking about vaccines. We're going to be talking about many different aspects, which I'll get into in a minute. But the title of the show is Debunking Propaganda. Okay, and I'll unpack that in just a second. One of the things that we talk about in the show is um, obviously misinformation. We talk about censorship. And I think it's important for people to realize uh, what has happened to my social media, uh, what has happened to my website um, over the last three months. So I published uh, a podcast with Hillary Butler in December, and it was well-trafficked. Thousands of listens, uh, very well-reviewed. It actually shot me to within the top 20 rankings for podcasts um, at that time. But here's what happened. Uh, Three days after that, I received a notification from Facebook that I was spreading fake news because of some meme that I had supposedly shared uh, through their platform. So I followed the links to the meme, and sure enough, I had never actually seen the meme before. I had obviously not shared it, and I wrote back to them basically saying, you know, you you own Facebook, it's your platform, can you please show me where I posted this? And um, obviously got no reply, but in the original original email I got from them, basically they said that they have now downgraded my page to quote-unquote low quality, um, that I'm spreading fake news and that less people will be seeing what I'm posting on Facebook. Okay, so that's that side of it. I've now also subsequently watched traffic to my website uh, drop quite sharply. Um, And this is, I think anyway, um, well, in fact, I know because Facebook's called me out on it. But uh, we know that Google is also censoring at the browser level. Okay, so obviously Google search, um, SEO and all of that stuff is now impacting uh, traffic to the website. So I've had to really think a little bit more about how I'm going to approach this and what my position is going to be. And to to be quite frank, I think this might be the last podcast on vaccines that I'm going to do for a while. Um, If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I would encourage you to go back and, um, you know, I've done four or five episodes now. So there's a good eight to 10 hours of content. And I think if you um, listen to those, I think you'll have a pretty clear understanding of where I stand on, on things. And I think you'll also understand what is actually going on and why the concerns that are being raised and that are being spoken about are in fact valid concerns, okay? Um, So you will also notice, um, for those of you who have been tuning in for a while, you will notice that I've started doing transcript. Um, I'm not going to be transcribing this particular podcast because, of course, the word vaccine is used repeatedly and uh, I really can't afford to take any more hits to both my social media accounts and also my website. I mean, obviously, I'm running a business and uh, this is my livelihood that we're talking about. But that said, um, I am not about to uh, back down on this issue um, at all. Uh, I think that for now, at any rate, um, I think I've done a good service here. And I think that there's a lot of killer content that you can sink your teeth into and um, educate yourself on. Um, Right. So, 
There are a lot of different points that Jeremy Hammond, who's my guest today, there's a lot of points that we talk about on um, today's show that I feel all revolve around the theme of the misrepresentation of information and of actual scientific data. Right, so that's the sort of overarching theme. And of course, the title of the show is titled Debunking Propaganda. And uh, Jeremy is an investigative um, journalist. He's an author. Uh, he's a writing coach. Um, his research is, is extremely um, in-depth. Uh, he's well-trafficked. He's got a good following. Um, he's got a good uh, database of people that read his newsletter, um, which, by the way, you can check out in the show notes. You can actually um, go onto his website, onto Twitter, etc., etc. But a couple of things that we talk about um, today, and I'll just give you the highlights. We talk about the role of media, right? so that's mainstream media, and uh, social media in the manufacturing of consent, right? So how does how do they tie into policy? Um, we talk about um, the obviously the safety and the efficacy of vaccines. So we get into a lot of that. We touch on uh, the whole idea of vaccines and autism. Okay, which I think you'll find very interesting. It's actually towards the end of the episode, but the idea that every time this argument or this discussion gets brought up whereby vaccines cause autism, immediately everyone just gets Wakefielded, right? So it's like Andy Wakefield, study in 1998, so this was debunked, end of conversation. And I think um, once you hear what Jeremy has to say, if we roll the clock back a few years, you will see that the concerns for autism were there before that study. And in fact, um, even if you discount that study and ignore it altogether, the concerns are still there. Okay, so some good info there um, on that. We talk about um, individual vaccines. We touch on measles in Samoa and what happened there. Okay, so sort of um, very brief anyway. And now you're also going to notice that we are a little bit out of touch with regards to our brief discussion on the coronavirus. Okay, Um, this podcast was recorded um, earlier this year, and I have just not released it until now. And so you will hear some statistics in there and really our thoughts on the matter, because at the time of recording, this was really a a breaking news issue. And what's interesting is when I look at the statistics, um, you know, at the time of recording, which was sometime in January, it was like mid-January, somewhere around there, um, the cases in China were 4,000. Okay, the cases now in China at current time of recording, which is uh, beginning of March, uh, are now 90,000. Okay, so um, I'm going to reserve my thoughts and opinions on the coronavirus for now. Um, I feel like the internet is just flooded with information. Uh, So perhaps I'll do a solo podcast on that um, on my own. Suffice to say that I feel like there is a lot of mixed information, right? So some sources, um, reputable sources, you know, independent journalists, independent um, researchers, scientists, and so on, that are legitimately sounding the alarm, right? So saying that this is a pandemic, this does pose a threat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But others sort of downplaying things, right? And looking at stats like, you know, what is the mortality rate, which if in case you don't know, is between 2 and 10%. So very low mortality, higher than flu, but low mortality rate. Um, If you look at the amount of people infected in the general population, you're talking less than 1%. 
If you look at the age demographic of people that are actually dying from the coronavirus, you'll see that it is mostly people over the age of 60. You'll also see that um, oftentimes there are pre-existing health conditions and underlying factors that are contributing to that, right? So it's not actually the coronavirus on its own as the sole cause. So middle-aged people, um, kids seem to be quite immune to it uh, and so on. So I, I'm, I'm not really made up, um, I've not made up my mind yet as to whether I feel the coronavirus is a genuine pandemic and does it pose this global threat. However, you know, sort of circling back to uh, the topic here in today's podcast, you know, with mainstream media just pushing the fear button and the panic button there doesn't really need to be a pandemic in order for there to be chaos. Uh, there simply needs to be the perceived notion that there is, in fact, a pandemic, and we're already starting to see markets crash, events being closed, the economy taking a hit, and so on and so on. So, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I stand on that. Um, however, you know, stay safe, uh, pro- you know, practice proper hygiene, washing of hands, uh, using disinfectants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, again, there's so much information out there, so I will uh, leave it at that. Um, all right, I think that's it from my side. Uh, so, yeah, welcome to the show, Jeremy Hammond, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, if you do, uh, please share this with your friends, family, community, and um, subscribe and leave us a review. Okay, thanks for tuning in. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Um, So I've been following you for a little while and reading a lot of your articles, which are just like really in-depth and you unpack a lot of stuff. Um, You know, a lot of that we're going to actually talk about on the show today. But for people who are perhaps not familiar with you or your work, how would you describe what you do? Well, essentially, I I kind of specialize in debunking propaganda. So I I, I just... uh, report what people are being told by the government and mainstream media. And then I t- take a step back and I look at what what the facts are that, that are publicly available. And, and I just do an analysis and, and draw conclusions about, about how the facts, you know, are so different from what we're being told. Uh, and I do that with a number of issues. I've done that with a number of issues over the years from uh, from, from uh, the economy to in the, the role of the Federal Reserve and, and now more more uh, a lot more on the vaccine issue mm, mm. and so what what's what's your sort of background or, or training and like how did you get into doing what you do well i started in, in kind of on down this path right after 9 11 and so i had i had traveled to taiwan right after 9 11 um i played bought my plane ticket like two weeks before the, the terrorist attacks and then uh, so I, I went there um and I was asking myself the question, you know, why, why would people do this? And I consider myself more, you know, aware of, of, of you know, world affairs and things than most people. Um, but still, it was naive enough to, to ask that question, you know, in, in, my, in my innocence and naivete. I was satisfied with George Bush's answer that it's because they hate our freedoms. And so I just really started, you know, I got over there and I, and I, I started researching and, and just kind of started, you know, going to an internet cafe. I didn't have a computer back then. And out <laughs> digging into stuff and you know became pretty evident pretty early um you know what what was going on with u.s foreign policy in the middle east and especially you know the, the israel-palestine conflict the u.s role uh, that's my major book is the obstacle to peace the u.s role in the israeli-palestinian conflict uh, in 2008 i started my website foreign policy journal and as i've said in, in more recent 
shifted my focus to now almost exclusively the vaccine issue uh, because as a father, I became a father in, in 2012. And, you know, just doing my own research to be able to make an informed decision, uh, you know, as a, as a parent um, about vaccinations, uh, I just started using my journalism training, kind of looking into the medical literature, which I'd gotten comfortable with already, just, just dealing with my own certain health issues, just do my own research into, uh, in, right, in the medical literature, go to PubMed.gov, you know, whatever other resources are available, uh, and, and just going straight to the source bypassing you know what we're told on, on cdc information statements at the pediatrician's office or or by the mainstream media and just looking at the science and you know the more i just dug into the literature the the dis about vaccines and their safety and effectiveness and what we're told by government you know government agencies like the cdc the fda you know members of congress uh, and, and, and by the media, you know, the New York times, Washington post, the, the disparity is it's like night and day. I mean, it, there's just, there's conflicting and irreconcilable differences mm -hmm. between what we're told and what's in the science. Uh, and so that, you know, it really caused me to just shift my phone. So that, that's really, it. I'm just, you know, really, I'm just a dad <laughs> who reads a lot, do a lot of research. I've got, a, you know, I, I have skills in research and analysis and so I'm just applying those skills. I don't have any degree in journalism or anything. I'm just applying the skills that I have to where I feel they're needed. Uh, and so this is this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I can attest to a lot of what you're doing um, just in terms of the quality, uh, you know, because uh, a lot, as we'll talk about today, you know, the sources that you're using and the data that you're using to actually, um, you know, frame up your articles and the research um, yeah, as you said, you know, it's night and day and, and I agree with that. And, you know, longtime listeners of the show who have listened to previous um, podcasts on this topic will also attest to that as well. But what I want to do is just, let's just sort of jump into the deep end here. And I sort of have a few key areas that I want to um, talk about today. And, and I want to keep us pointed to the larger theme here, which is sort of debunking propaganda, okay? So we can sort of view view all of these isolated topics through that lens. And really, let's just start from the beginning, because I think that, um, you know, one of the arguments that comes up repeatedly is this notion that, you know, vaccines eradicated all disease, and if it wasn't for vaccines alone, um, all of these diseases would still be around and we would have been wiped out as a civilization, blah, blah, blah. So let's just start with, you know, roll us, roll us back to the 1930s, 1940s, when we really started seeing mass vaccination become more prominent. And what was happening around that time and what was happening before that time? Well, you know, when vaccines were first invented, I mean, scientists had practically no understanding of the immune, immune system. I mean, it's really, it's an it's an archaic technology, uh, and, it, and, and in my, my view, I would I would go so far as to say it's barbaric, because um, just the scientists in, in in the way that the vaccine industry is still functions today is still you know they still accept the basic premises that they were they accepted way back then in terms of you know just in terms of FDA licensure for example you know they consider uh, antibody titer so you know if they have a certain level of antibodies that that they consider to be protective you know, they, that they, they equate that with immunity. Um, and that's just an assumption that, that underlies, you know, how vaccines get to market. Uh, but that's not, that's not true that, 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 you know, just because somebody has a high antibody level doesn't mean necessarily that they're immune or just because somebody lacks 
a certain antibody titer, it doesn't mean that they're not immune. Uh, and so there are all kinds of problems like that. Just the, just the uh, fundamental underlying assumptions that go into, you know, uh, just the manufacture of vaccines. Hmm. And and their goals and intent and um, so you know if you look at the decline in infectious disease mortality in the 20th century, most of it, the vast majority of it, 90 percent of it, in fact, uh, occurred before 1940 when there were any vaccines or even antibiotics available, uh, you know, to to explain the decline. And so that's attributed entirely just to essentially an increasing standard of living. You know, we had better sanitation, refrigeration, you know, less crowding, um, you know, nutrition, better nutritional standards, you know, and, and people were just, you know, eating better, you know, better understanding of nutrition, better understanding of personal hygiene practices, uh, all these factors, you know, that, that affect, you know, disease, mortality and morbidity. And so, you know, we kind of have this impression, you know, that, I mean, my impression was always that, you know, vaccines accomplished that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. then you just look at the data and and like measles is a great example where you see the decline in mortality happened before the the vaccine was introduced. The vaccine was introduced in 1963. And, you know, and most of that decline, you know, in, in mortality occurred beforehand. The vaccine did succeed, you know, was successful in re measles um but that that goal right there is not necessarily uh, uh <laughs> a, a wise goal to to implement because there's all kinds of other considerations um there's opportunity costs for example where measles is actually associated um you know in in, in especially in countries where, where there's low acute mortality like the u.s um you know the the mortality rate in countries like the you know enveloped countries is completely different and then you know like in african countries and you always see the media like exciting the fact that measles is so deadly around the globe mm-hmm. as though that that was relevant for parental you know decision making you know about parents living in the us which is not because you know the 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 rate of, rate of mortality in the us before the vaccine was like 1 in 10,000 according to CDC data and according to the Institute of Medicine, one in 10,000 in developed countries, which is much different from like what we saw in Samoa during the outbreak. Where, yeah. You know, yeah. 14 and, you know, reported cases. I mean, just this insanely high um, death rate, tragically high. Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, and you know, the, the funny thing is, sorry to interject, but, you know, mm-hmm. just the Samoa, you know, I did a two hour podcast with Hillary Butler on Samoa. And, you know, the part that's always conveniently left out, which is something you brought up a minute ago, is is the nutritional status, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and that was a huge factor, you know, vitamin A deficiency, um, because a large percentage of maybe not the people in some actually, sorry, I'm going to back up a step, a large, the majority of the people were in fact vaccinated you know, in, in Samoa and in New Zealand where it started. So, yeah, you know, um, again, just to reiterate your point that nutritional deficiencies, are, you know, play a huge part. But, um, yeah, so carry on with the whole, with the, the measles story, you know, developed versus undeveloped um, or developing countries, I should say. Yeah, well, yeah, I was, I was talking about the opportunity costs. And so, uh, for example, uh, you know, in areas where there's, a, you know, low acute mortality, like, you know, obviously developed countries, and, and I'm referring to studies that are done in Africa, where, where there's areas of low acute measles mortality. But obviously, that, that's the case for developed countries like the US. And the studies have found, you know, that, that surviving measles is, is associated with a, a decreased risk of, of dying from other diseases. So it appears, you know, and this is true for the vaccine too. And of course, the you know we, the, the media like to talk about that. They like to talk about how, you know, the studies have found that getting the 
measles vaccine is associated with a reduced risk of childhood mortality from all causes. So in other words, you know, it, it, it seems to protect against not just measles, but also other diseases. Um, so they like to point that out. But what they don't talk about is how that's also true, obviously, for natural infection. <laughs> right. And so it, which makes sense because, you know, the, the, the vaccine is designed to, to essentially try to mimic the immune response that you would have to, to the wild virus. So it makes sense that, that this is true for both, uh, you know, for, for infection. And so the, that's what studies show is that uh, it, contrary to this recent, you know, there's this recent media hype about the immune amnesia hypothesis. Um, you know, the, the media was, was hype, has been hyping this, uh, you know, in a couple of phases. First in 2015, there was a big study that came out. And then just just uh, just last year, or maybe it was even, yeah, just just a few months ago, I think it was, um, that another study came out. And they're talking about this immune amnesia hypothesis where they're saying, you know, that if you if you get measles, then it wipes out your, you know, your immune system so that you're unprotected from, not, you know, not just from measles, but from other diseases. So how, how, did, how did that even come about? Because my understanding here is that if you, you know, perhaps we'll touch on this uh, in a minute, but if you are naturally acquire a disease like measles, for example, you actually have lifelong immunity. You, you know, you're protected essentially forever. And this could be passed along from generation to generation. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just having a hard right. time understanding how we can have immune amnesia knowing that historically what we've been told even through medicine is that, you know, you get infected once and um, you have lifelong protection. I mean, this is why we had measles and chickenpox parties back in the day. Well, well, that's that's the first obvious problem with the hypothesis is that that's not what we observe. And that's not, you know, where where are all the cases, you know, in, in the in the literature, you know, of people, you know, children getting measles and then either dying of other things. I mean, this wasn't, you know, this is an unknown phenomenon. It was never observed. <laughs> you know? So how did, I mean, so again, how did this even come about? Like, how yeah, did we... So well, it came about from the studies that were being done in Africa into what's called nonspecific effects uh, of, of vaccinations. And so this is a nonspecific effect is essentially an unintended consequence. Um, so for example, the, the specific effect of, of the measles vaccine is that, you know, it protects against measles. That's the outcome that they're aiming for. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's such a thing as vaccine failure, but the, the goal is to stimulate uh, the immune system in a way that, that confers a, a beneficial, uh, you know, a, a protective effect. Uh, so a non-specific effect would be something like, you know, you, you get the measles, you know, get the vaccine and you die from some other disease because you got the vaccine. And so with, with live vaccines generally, like the measles vaccine, it's a live vaccine, a live virus vaccine. Uh, the, 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 these types of studies have generally found that there's beneficial effects, uh, which again makes sense since, uh, you know, the, the live vaccines more closely mimic the natural immune response to, to infection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas the non-live vaccines are, are associated with a increased risk of childhood mortality. So the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, the whole cell pertussis vaccine, for example, the DTP has been shown uh, you know, to be associated with, with an increased risk of dying from other diseases. And, and so, you know, it, it, these type of non-live vaccines appear to train, you know, train the immune system to respond in a way that actually uh, in the long term is detrimental. Hmm. Uh, whereas, um, you know, live vaccines confer, you know, appear to confer a protective benefit. Um, but, but then so, so does natural infection. In fact, infection during childhood has been associated with reduced risk, not just of other infectious diseases, um, but uh, you know, other diseases like Parkinson's disease, certain forms of cancer, 
Um, in fact, measles infection has been observed to cause regression of, in cancer in children. Interesting. Uh, that, that was back in the 1970s. Doctors started noticing that. And then so <laughs> Mayo Clinic took that observation and tried to develop a vaccine to treat cancer, you know, where they like inject the measles virus <laughs> into people yeah, to, yeah. Treat, to treat cancer, you know, <laughs> oh, um, man. so... Well, and, and the irony of all of this is like, okay, so we're, you know, so here we have a natural virus in the wild, right? So it's a measles virus that we're going to get that into our body. We're going to get the measles. And, you know, obviously there are complications with measles. Like I'm not downplaying that, like in a small percentage of people, absolutely, there could be, you know, very serious um, consequences from getting the measles. However, um, you're just getting the virus, right? So now um, I think it's important for people to understand that when we have created a vaccine with a live virus, we're not just injecting the virus. It comes with a whole bunch of other crap in, in the vaccine, right? So all of right. these adjuvants and um, contaminants and whatnot. And, you know, perhaps we'll touch on that in, in a little bit. You know, I, I think that that is where a lot of the focus is these days, is looking at these toxins, looking at these contaminants and seeing what are these actually doing? You know, so forget about the virus for a second. What are these right. contaminants doing? Right. Um, you know, so it's not the same as getting it as, as a, a wild um, virus. Right. Uh, yeah, I'd like to get into that. But just to kind of you asked about the, yeah, kind yeah. Of the origin of the immune amnesia, and I don't want to leave uh, listeners hanging. So I'll mm -hmm, kind of wrap mm -hmm. that up. So where it came from, the hypothesis is, is so they observed this study showing that the measles vaccine was associated with a, a reduced risk of childhood mortality from other, you know, other causes. And so that that's the, the this immune amnesia hypothesis was was, you know, originated to try to explain that observation. And so the, the the basic theory is that you know that the reason that that is is the children who get measles the, you know they they're in, there's this you know long term immune amnesia as they call it that uh, basically wipes out the immune system and makes children more susceptible to other diseases. The problem with this is that all these studies that are, are done on non specific effects show just the opposite that that measles infection is associated with a decreased risk of dying from other diseases. <laughs> hmm. So again, it's just not what's observed. Uh, the hypothesis doesn't doesn't fit the the data. And, um, and th this this data, I mean, is this data coming from the CDC? Is this like official, you know, World Health Organization data? Um, it's, it's it's coming primarily from a, a team of researchers um, out, out of I believe it's Denmark, um, and right. actually who actually associated with with a, a vaccine manufacturer over there. There's a pharmaceutical company. It's called mm. a, um, uh, I forget the name of it, um, but uh, but I think it's a Danish um, biopharma company uh, that that these researchers are associated with, and they've been doing this research, you know, since I, at least the '80s, if not earlier than that. Um, and, and mainly in African countries, looking at non-specific effects of vaccines, and and so is this, this this research has been going on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, and one of the problems is is there's no you know the, the, there's no randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials looking at you know, things like uh, you know long-term health outcomes, including effects on mortality. I mean, we talk about you know we're, all, we're always told the measles vaccine is beneficial and. In context, in the context of you know the U.S. Um, in the decision-making process for U.S. parents, mm -hmm. but the th the truth is we don't really know because um, you, you know even back when the vaccine was first introduced, they had no idea what the what the effects would be on mortality because it was never studied. I mean, the, the long term, there were no long term trials to, to determine that. Mm -hmm. And so we.
you know, that that's protective. But, you know, and now, of course, the situation has changed because the incidence is so, you know, the, the vaccine was effective at reducing transmission. And so, you know, the chances of getting measles in the first place is, you know, you know, less than the chance of getting struck by lightning. Mm. And, and so, you know, the, as though, you know, the risk benefit analysis that we're being constantly presented with is, well, if you don't get the vaccine and you get measles, then, you know, these are, this is the risks. But, you know, we also have to factor in the fact that, you know, as a parent, <laughs> when I say we, we parents also have to look at the fact that, well, the, ch- the chances of, of, of my child actually getting measles in the first place, even being exposed to it is so small. <laughs> you know, I have to I have to consider that as a parent. I have to consider that. And so, you know, we're not being presented with a, uh, with a real honest risk benefit analysis. And the other thing they do is that, you know, they lie about the stats. Like we're told that one in a thousand um, cases of measles results in death. Or, you know, one or one or one to t- or two or three children will die for every thousand cases. But what you know, that's what the CDC do, is doing when it's presenting that data is in its denominator, it's presenting reported cases. Whereas we know in the pre vaccine era that most cases were, you know, mild, it was generally benign disease, you know, infection. And like you said, yes, it could be deadly and yes, it could cause uh, complications, but those were, you know, the, the minority of cases. And the, the mortality rate was one in 10,000, which I might have mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and so, whereas, oh, you know, it might have been one, one per 1,000 reported cases. But in terms of estimated, actual estimated cases, it was one in 10,000. And, that, and that's the figure, again, accepted by the Institute of Medicine, one, in t- one per 10,000, not one per thousand, as we're constantly told uh, by the deceitful media who can't be bothered just to look at the CDC's own data. You know, they, well, so, they always so, just repeat the CDC, but they don't bother looking at the CDC's own data to see that it was one in 10,000, not one in a thousand. Yeah, well, I, well I'll, I'll just say this and then we can move on. I mean, I feel like their real journalism is is almost dead. You know, it's it's uh, the yes. real journalists are people like yourself, in a sense, and independent researchers who are actually really looking at these issues critically um, versus, you know, mainstream media who are, are literally just throwing up the same headlines, you know, getting it from Reuters or whatever um, and, and spewing out the same mantras over well, yeah, on that note, I mean, the, the the problem with the media is the function that it's 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 serving with the mainstream media, with corporate media, is that they're they're serving the function of um, essentially manufacturing consent for public policy. So they're doing they're doing public policy advocacy rather than journalism, and that's what it comes down to. Hmm. And why? I mean, like, obvi- I know the answer, but for our listeners, why is that? You know, why? What what what's what's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about? <laughs> that's a that's a complicated question, but you know, it, in my view, from my perspective, um, it has to do with what I like to call the state religion. Um, and I'm borrowing that term from Noam Chomsky, who's described the role of intellectuals in, in society. You know, as you know, they they fulfill this function. You know, for this, you know, for the state religion, they're high priests of the state religion. Where you know, we, we see this on, on any issue. You know, in, in foreign policy. Uh, where, you know, take the Iraq war and how the media really manufactured consent among the public for that war by lying, you know, by relaying the government's, by parroting the government's claims about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction and, and you know, operative t- links with al-Qaeda uh, and, and, you know, all the stuff that, of course, we, we know now, it's been proven, was, was false. And I was writing was false before the invasion even happened. Uh, that's, again, goes back to my origins as a journalist and how I got started. It was one of the things I was writing about earlier was how the government was lying to start a war. 
And, you know, and so just in terms of the role of the media, that's the role that the media uh, fulfill. And again, to, to borrow from Noam Chomsky, you know, that just the term manufacturing consent is another term I'm borrowing from Chomsky mm-hmm. and, and Edward Herman. Um, they wrote the book, Manufacturing Consent, um, the political economy of the mass media. And they talk about how, you know, how the media in, in supposedly free societies. I mean, obviously, if you look at, you know, authoritarian countries, you know, communist countries that, you know, where the government owns the media mm-hmm. and make, you know, obviously there's no, you know, no need to try to explain how, you know, the media serve a propaganda function when the state owns the media. But we supposed to, we're supposed to live in a democracy where we have a free press and, and it's not supposed to work that way. And, but, you know, their whole book explains how the media and supposedly society, society where we supposedly have a free press still perform that function. Uh, of of propagandizing mm-hmm. and and so they talk about that in great detail um and, that, and that's true yeah that's that's the role the media f- fulfill yeah well if i can add another layer i mean you know we we have uh, the government is essentially shining the corporate shoe nowadays you know this is uh, especially here in the west i mean the corporations are the government caters to corporations is really what i'm getting at yes and um you know the corporations own the media Right. right. You know, and so when you start going down that road, I mean, yeah, it might get a little conspiratorial mm-hmm. or whatever people want to think, but but that is how it is. Um, you know, and I think that's a huge uh, factor, especially when you start bringing in things like censorship. You know, um, social media censorship is huge nowadays and, and it's, it's only getting worse in a sense. So just going yeah. back to, you know, your point of manufacturing consent, I mean, one of the things um, I sort of wanted to get into this a little bit later in the show, but since we're talking about it, let's, let's do it. You know, we're seeing it from all angles now and, and we're seeing that, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, the Pinterests um, together with mainstream media, together with pharmaceutical lobbyists lobbying the government, um, you know, it's almost like this, this cohesive force that is just pushing one narrative forward. And it's very difficult to have conversations with people who have not looked outside of that narrative, right? right. Especially when they're trying to strangle out any dissenting opinions as well. So I don't know if you have any insights on that or if you want to comment on that. Yeah, well, uh, that if you just to look at an example, so Adam Schiff, Congressman Adam Schiff, wrote a letter to the CEOs of, of Facebook, Google, and Amazon requesting them to censor information to, to not allow uh, people to find information that, you know, he called, which he called misinformation. Uh, but if you look at his letters and in, in, in the way he was using the term misinformation, he was using it as a euphemism. And what he really meant to which he, he really outlined in clear terms in his letter, what he meant by misinformation, the criteria was that in, any information that might cause a parent to, to question, um, you, you know, their, what they're being called upon to do, which is to strictly comply with the CDC's routine childhood vaccine schedule. So any information that might lead a parent to, to question the, the schedule or to make a decision, you know, that, that is different from strict compliance with the CDC's schedule, then that is by definition misinformation. So it has nothing to do with how, how true or factual or accurate the information is. It's, you know, what will it cause the parent to do? What will the behavior be of, of the parent based on the information? Hmm. And that was the criteria for, for um, defining something as, you know, quote unquote, misinformation. So it's a euphemism. And, and you know, and then we see Google and Facebook and, and um, Amazon um, yeah. responding to that letter by doing exactly what, con- you know, Congressman Schiff 
called upon them to do, which is to censor information. Uh, Facebook updated its algorithm to try to downplay you know, any information that doesn't come from sources like the CDC, the, the World Health Organization, the WHO, um, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, all these institutions that we're supposed to regard as trustworthy, you know, that provide accurate information. Um, whereas people now go to my page on Facebook and they see a warning, you know, saying, you know, this this page posts about vaccines. You know, if you want good information, go to the CDC. Mm-hmm. And if anyone reads my <laughs> articles and I and I talk about how how the CDC lies to the <laughs> to the public, you know, and and I and I can quote studies in the medical literature, you know, criticizing the CDC, for example. Uh, there was a 2010 Cochrane meta-analysis, which is a basically a systematic review of the medical literature on the flu shot. And they went so far in their, their criticism of the CDC's recommendation uh, as to, you know, accuse the CDC of, uh, of misrepresenting the science to support their policy. So, you know, that's not me saying that. That's the prestigious Cochrane collaboration, you know, which is an international, people don't know, it's an international organization um, that doesn't accept industry funding that, that specializes in what's called a meta-analysis or a literature review. And so, you know, that's, you know, you know it's, not, it's not me, you know, coming up with some conspiracy theory about the, the CDC lying. That's straight from, that's straight from, uh, you know, the, the scientists and, and restraint from the medical literature that the CDC deceives people. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, the, the crazy thing is, is, you know, obviously when you get into public discourse on this topic, it is so polarizing. And I feel like people have made their minds up before they even look at anything else. And if you show them anything that is, that doesn't fit into their belief system, right. they automatically reject it, you know? Yes, and, and, yes. and I think that, um, people like yourself, people like Dr. James Lyons Weiler, who is a very, very esteemed researcher. You know, the guy's like set up hundreds of clinical trials. He teaches people how to read um, scientific literature so that you can make sense of the stats. You know, I mean, the guy's like been doing it for decades. Um, you've got Dell Bigtree, you know, using only government data. Like he doesn't use any other data. And I think people gloss over that point. Which, which, which is concerning. You know, it's not like, as you said, it's not like Jeremy has some hypothesis and this is what I'm going to throw out there. It's like, no, we're actually looking at the, the real data. We're looking at the real science and this is how we're presenting it. And unfortunately, people are just not seeing it that way. Um, at, at least, yeah, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Well, uh, you know, again, going back to kind of the Iraq war issue, and, and that was really an enlightening experience for me because, as I mentioned, I was I was sending information home of, about how the government was lying. And I was just, you know, and I was doing things like, you know, just citing UN because, of course, UN inspectors prior to 1998 were in the country, in Iraq, you know, monitoring its nuclear program uh, or in its disarmament. I mean, its nuclear program had, had already been dismantled. And in so I just, you know, looking at old reports from the, from the UN and, and you're just comparing that with what the what claims were being made about, you know, the existing weapons of mass destruction. And, 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 and so it wasn't like I was just making stuff up when I was saying the government was lying. I was just showing people the information and how what the government's claims, how the government's complaint uh, uh, claims compared with, you know, known facts. And but the, people were just so uh, non receptive to it. You know, they just didn't want to accept that the government would lie to start a war, you know, and I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, friends, family, people that I was sending these emails to, they just, the reaction I I got was really shocking to me. And it was really eye opening for me. And I, and for a long time, I struggled with that. Like what, what is going on? Like, what is, why can people just not see this? 
Um, you know, eventually, the more I, I kind of got into this work, um, you know, I just realized that it's, it's it, that psychological barrier. It's like you said, people don't want to look at facts that don't fit their preconceived ideas about how the world functions and in, 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 the, mm. in their reality, people have, you know, people live in their own little, you know, bubble of a reality and uh, they have their, these preconceived beliefs and anything that challenges their fundamental belief system, you know, they're, they're going not going to be very accepting of. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like people are like, like some of the stuff that we talk about here? Um, do you think that people just find it, impossible to believe like you know the government would never do that my doctor would never do that the end sorry maybe the, the blame is not on the doctors here you know the, right. um, the the government would never do that you know yes yeah i think that's really i mean people and that's what i mean when i talk about the state religion that people have this this faith in government this belief that the, you know the government is is you know this benevolent thing you know that the state is this benevolent force this benevolent institution that is taking care of us, you know, that we need agencies like the, the mm-hmm. FDA and the CDC watching out for us and taking care of our health. But the crazy thing for me is, is you know, I mean, you touch on a couple of things here. And, and I think the crazy thing for me is this, is if you believe that government and state is here to look after you, fine, like no problem, right? But but also now consider that these same state organizations, you know, the CDC, who is essentially coming up with the schedule, who's providing us with this information and this data, they also hold a whole bunch of patents on, on the same things that they're ma- trying to mandate. You know, they hold patents on these, um, on vaccines. Yeah, the We've government got, licenses vaccine technology. To right, right. Companies. Yeah. And, and so, so, that's, so then now to add to that, we know, I mean, it's fairly well known, at least between people like you and myself, that you know, the CDC, the FDA, and the pharmaceutical companies, the top brass there is just like a revolving door. You, you know, I mean, people just go one minute they're on the board for the FDA and the next minute they're back on the board for Merck and, right. you know, and, and ran around you go. So I think this whole notion of, you know, the government's here to save and protect us and to oversee all of these things and to really critically look at the science and to do what's best for us. I think that it's been co-opted by the corporations, particularly the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, because the, cor- the the corporations recognize that that they can utilize the government toward to to achieve their aims, and so they use government force and then government regulations. Uh, you know, they're they're geared toward um, toward assisting the industry. I mean, vaccine manufacturers have no legal liability for vaccine injuries in the United States because the government has granted them broad legal immunity against vaccine injury lawsuits. So how, how did that come about just for our listeners? I mean, I know the bit of the backstory, but this all happened in 86, right? Yeah. And so, you know, so there, there's no free market in, in for vaccines. 1986, um, the, the government, well, what was happening in the, in the 80s was that vaccine manufacturers or a, a number of companies actually went, went out of business. Uh, and then the remaining manufacturers were kind of scared by, by injury lawsuits that were occurring. And so, and of course, public health officials, they have their policy recommendations and, you know, policy is, is a freight train moving down a, a track and, you know, just the momentum of policy, it was such that, the, you know, with, with a threat to the supply of vaccines, the, the, that threatened pu- public policy. And so to preserve public policy, uh, they granted legal immunity to the manufacturer. Was this was this essentially so that you know we could quote unquote continue to 
you know, um, give give the public access to these life saving medications, you know, without um, potential drawbacks, you know, because exactly. from my understanding, yeah, you know, basically like, oh well, you know, if um, if things really went downhill and we got all these lawsuits and we couldn't produce these vaccines, then that would be a disservice to the public, right? Because vaccines are just so, you know, they've just done, this provided so much value and they've cured all these diseases. So, you know, it's almost like they painted themselves into this neat little bubble where we can do whatever the hell we want and there's no liability whatsoever. Right. Essentially, I mean, the, the, the basic idea was to, you know, ensure a, a stable vaccine supply. And of course, with, with vaccine injury lawsuits threatening um, industry profits, that risked the vaccine supply. And so to you know, ensure that's that supply, that the, the industry was granted legal immunity. And along with that was created the vaccine injury compensation program. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, you know, if, if somebody has a claim of a vaccine injury claim, instead of being able to sue the manufacturer, you know, in, in the courts where there's, you know, the, the discovery process, um, they there is no discovery process. So sometimes it's called a vaccine court, but it's not a court. Really, uh, it's just a special master's proceeding, um, and and so you know families can get compensation for vaccine injuries uh, through the vaccine injury compensation program, and so uh, and, and it's it's funded by a ta- an excise tax on each vaccine dose administered, and so essentially what this law did was to um, shift the financial burden for vaccine injuries away from the pharmaceutical industry and onto the taxpaying consumers. Hmm. And I, I believe it's also very difficult to actually get compensated, right? So if you suspect that you were injured, I mean, you know, when I had Dell Bigtree on the show, you know, we were talking, he was talking about data from, I think it was like 2016 was the last, like, maybe it's been updated since I had him on the show. But, you know, there was something in the region of 56 or 57,000 um, confirmed injuries. And of course, we know that that's uh, 1% of actual injuries according to the VAERS internal report. But out of those confirmed injuries, I mean, uh, do we know what percentage of those people actually get compensated? Because my understanding is it's very difficult to go through that whole process and receive money. Uh, I think there is data on that. I, I don't know it offhand, um, but yeah, it is difficult. And it depends on the injury because, so there's what's called the table injuries. So the, the Department of Health and Human Services which, by the way, you know that that's the 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 agency that that administers the vaccine injury compensation program, and also the CDC is under this agency. So, you know, you have <laughs> again kind of this conflict of interest uh, within within the government, where the CDC is recommending policies, and then you know, and then the government is at the same time administering this this vaccine injury program to to shift that financial burden away from the vaccine uh, uh, industry, and so. Uh, so they have that they maintain this list of, of you know known adverse events that are causally related to to vaccines, and so children who suffer one of those table injuries, um, basically the assumption is that the vaccine caused the injury unless there is some other more likely explanation. So when you say table injury, like just in lay terms, it, does this mean we're talking about something immediate, like it happened on the table? Is that you know, well, no, they, the, I'm talking about the table refers to the list that they maintain. So it's actually called the vaccine is the vaccine injury table. That's just the name of the list. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so and so, they, yeah, it's, it's a, they maintain this list of like, OK, if you got this vaccine and within such and such a period of time, you had this reaction to it. Yeah. We acknowledge that that, you know, unless there was some other 
explanation that that was caused by the vaccine, essentially. Okay. Um, however, for non-table injuries, the the petitioner has to essentially prove that the vaccine caused the injury. So, you know, the, the, the burden of proof is on them to show that, that that's the most likely explanation, that there is no other, you know, plausible explanation for the, the event that occurred, you know, other than the vaccine. Mm. And so, and then a third, a third way for things to go is the, the government can settle, which is the government's preferred way of doing things. And, and one of the reasons probably for that is because when the government settles a claim, um, it, you know, they, they, it, they don't consider an acknowledgement that the vaccine caused the injury. Ah, so that does that go on the record as as being a, you know, vaccine injured or no? Uh, well, they would not consider it to be a, a, an oh, admission wow. of vaccine injury. Well, wow. so, so, so all these settlements that are floating around out there, I mean, again, I don't have any data or numbers on this. Right. So it's interesting to know what yeah. percentage of cases are simply settled out of court. I do know um, the majority. I do know it's really? the majority. Okay. Yeah, wow. I, I, think, I think it's something like 70% are settled as opposed to um, wow. table injuries or, or non-table injuries. That okay, so just, just for our listeners out there, I think this is a really important point because I didn't actually know that, first of all. But what I'm understanding now as I'm sitting here talking to you is we've got only 1% of vaccine injuries are actually reported, first of all. That's according to VAERS, um, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, their own internal um, audit. So 1% of injuries are actually reported. And the majority of those injuries that are reported, 70%, are actually settled. Actually, probably they, they fall outside of that. So we're not actually getting the true numbers on vaccine injury is what I'm getting at. Right. And, and, and VAERS is a separate system from the, the, VI, the VICP, so, uh, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So just because, um, just because a, a, an adverse event has been reported to VAERS uh, doesn't mean that you know, the, the, the family of the injured child uh, you know, petitioned for a, a claim under okay. the VICP, for example. Right, right. Um, so there's a you know there's a d distinction there, and just because somebody files a claim under the VICP doesn't necessarily mean that their injury was reported to VAERS. Uh, that, that's not necessarily the case either. Um, so there's so, a so distinction. Do you, so so do you think though? I mean, just it, just to sort of pull all of this together, I mean, do you think that it's fair to say that the majority of adverse reactions or injuries are going unreported and and, and uncompensated for? According to the studies that have looked at the question of, you know, what is the frequency of reporting, uh, I mean, the studies that, that look at that question, they all acknowledge that that there's that's that underreporting is a serious problem with the VAERS system. We see, and this is this is annoying and frustrating in a sense because, you know, again, one of the big arguments that goes on out there is there's no proof to show that they cause injury. You know, it, they're right. safe and safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. It's all we hear. Well, it's really easy to say that vaccine, you know, that there's you no know, evidence that vaccines cause harm when there are no studies, you know, examining the question of whether vaccines cause harm. And I don't, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to overgeneralize when I say that. I mean, there are obviously safety studies, uh, but again, you know, it, it, the type of study matters and the the methodology of the study matters. And so we need to be looking at these types of questions and, and the way the media, there's kind of this cognitive dissonance and <laughs> uh, in the way where things are presented. And, and just to give an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, please. Um, it, you know, when, when an observational study, which is basically you look at, you know, it's usually retrospective. They look back at, you know, like population data. Um, from you know surveillance systems or like like VAERS, for example, or 
you know, um, data from healthcare networks or whatever, you know, government registries, wherever they're getting the data from, and they just look at population data. And, the, you know, they design a study to, to kind of test hypotheses and things. This, this type of study is known as an observational study. And so, you know, an observational study finds some benefit or some, you know, or some lack of association between vaccines and harm. And, and it's touted as, as though that that was, you know, essentially, uh, proof, <laughs> mm. you know, that, that that's trustworthy. We can rely on that data and the, and the findings. Um, whereas if an observational study finds, you know, an association between a vaccine and a harm, then we're reminded, well, this is just an observational study <laughs> and, and uh, a, an association doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? Hmm. And so it's this cognitive dissonance. And, and this, is, this is why the randomized placebo-controlled trial is considered the gold standard for safety studies, because with observational studies, there's all kinds of confounding factors. And, and it's very hard to control for all the you know, innumerable um, variables <laughs> and other factors. And so that's, you know, that's the whole purpose of a randomized you know, controlled trial is, is to be able to uh, be able to control for all the variables except for one, the variable that you're testing, right? Um, and so with, without randomized placebo-controlled trials, it's very hard to actually know, you know what, what the true rate of, of injury is. And, and you know, when they haven't done long-term trials looking at health outcomes, you know, they do again, you know, just in terms of FDA licensure, they, they don't even look at outcomes. They don't even look at target outcomes. They just, for example, they can just take, well, if the vaccine causes the immune system to produce a certain level of antibodies, we're going to equate that with immunity and we're going to call that protection. And we're going to say, so this vaccine is effective. Well, that's called, you know, <laughs> which is essentially scientific fraud because just because uh, uh, antibodies are neither always sufficient nor even necessary for for immunity, right? Right. So, well, and and that, that that's really looking at the the efficacy side of things, right? But right. Right. Coming, coming back to the safety side of things, um, I think it's important to remind our listeners, especially those who have not heard this before. You know, you talk about randomized uh, control studies. You know, with the, right. with the placebo, um, it's important to point out that there is has never been a study done with an inert placebo. So perhaps you can like expand on that and, and um, explain that a little bit to our listeners. Yeah, usually not. There are, there are studies um, that, you know, uh, rarely <laughs> they, they do use an inert placebo. Um, like for the HPV vaccine, I think there was one trial of all the clinical trials that did use an inert placebo. Um, but typically not. Typically they don't use a, an inert placebo to do vaccine uh, trials for licensure purposes. They use uh, an active comparator. So for example, they'll, they'll use another vaccine. So for example, uh, Gardasil 9 was compared against Gardasil <laughs> yeah. or, or they're given like an injection of aluminum or something, you know, so that, you know, which is a, a neurotoxin. And so, which, which, so what that does is, is it conceals the true, um, you know, they, so they consider that, you know, the, the purpose of a control group is to kind of have a background rate of adverse events, right? Uh, like what's normal in the population in the absence of, of the, the medical intervention. So, so just to pull that together, uh, so that I, I'm I'm clear, but also just for listeners in very simple terms, if we're comparing, um, let's say, if I'm going to compare smoking cigarettes to smoking cigars, right, and I want to look at lung cancer, 
and the cigars are my control, I can say, well, look, in the normal population, the normal population being those people who smoke cigars, right? right. They right. have 10% rate of lung cancer and the people smoking cigarettes over here, they also have 10% rate of lung cancer. So therefore, um, there's no difference, right? It's, it's right. There's no increased risk, <laughs> no, right. no increased relative risk. Uh, and that's the problem. They're looking at relative rather than absolute risk. So they're, you know, they're looking at the risk of you know, Gardasil 9 causing an adverse event compared to Gardasil causing an adverse event. Um, so they're not looking at the, the, the risk of Gardasil 9 causing an adverse event compared to, you know, girls who didn't get the, any vaccine, <laughs> you know, having, having well, the same adverse event. And so, yeah, there's no, they're not true placebo-controlled trials. And, they, and the thing is, they call it a placebo sometimes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, they do use some other term to, to describe it. But a lot of times they're even calling it a placebo, and it's not a placebo. Right. Um, so, but but the, these are, I mean, these are what are being touted as the safety studies, right? So when right. people say, oh, yes. they've been proven yes. to be safe, yes. here we go. This, this or, is the study. Or they, you know, or they have like, you know, I mean, like, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine i mean the study the studies that the, the trials that they show in the in the pack, package insert for the hepatitis b vaccines the the the, the follow-up period was four or five days <laughs> so oh, wow. and, and, and okay. so the hepatitis b vaccine for example you know it, it can it's, that's an aluminum containing vaccine and when it was introduced it also contained mercury mm. uh, thimerosal which has since been removed but it still contains aluminum and, uh, you know, studies show in mice studies, there's no human studies, but mice studies show, you know, detrimental uh, neurological effects of, of that vaccine um, due to the aluminum content. Hmm. And so, you know, there were never any studies examining the question of, well, what are the long term neurological effects of, of injecting infants on the first day of their life, you know, in a three dose series in, in, during infancy? Uh, with the hepatitis B vaccine, they didn't have long-term studies looking at, at, at you know health outcomes, other than you know what, what's the impact on you know hepatitis B. And in fact, well, as far as I know, the, the trials that were done were done in adults. I don't even know that they 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 did infant trials. Well, and this the, the, this is another point that I think is worth um, talking about. You know, um, I had Professor Chris Exley on the show um, quite a while back now, and I've been following his some of his work. And you know, Dr. Lyons Weiler also just released a study very recently looking at you know essentially aluminum um, uptake, if you will. Uh, you know, uh, how, how much gets stored in the body versus how much gets excreted. And right. I think that's another issue that's also never spoken about. You know, I've seen comments yes. recently on Facebook that, oh, well, you know, aluminum is only absorbed, I think it's 0.3%. You know, so, so we're, we're comparing ingested aluminum versus injected aluminum, and we're saying that they're exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's one of the, the common talking points that you, that, that, you know, the general public hears all the time. Oh, the aluminum's safe, and you, you, you get more aluminum exposure from your diet than you do from vaccines, and or, or children, you know, there's more aluminum in breast milk than, than vaccines and you know, all these, these things. But the, yeah. what they're overlooking is, yeah, you, that's an invalid comparison because you, you can't compare um, the, the absorption of aluminum from ingestion with, with injection. These are two different routes of exposure. <laughs> and so, you know, this is a, a logical fallacy. And yeah, like you said, it's, I think, you know, it's less than 1%. And I, like, you, I think you hit the exact number. I think it is 0 0.03 generally from, from studies that have looked at this. Um, like it's, a, it's a tiny fraction of the aluminum that you that you ingest is actually absorbed through your gut lining and, and into your into your body, whereas 
when you bypass the innate immune system, the gut lining is part of the immune system. Mm-hmm. When you bypass that innate immune system uh, and inject the aluminum directly into the tissue, well, you know, there's 100% absorption. And so, and this is another thing they'll do. They'll cite studies that let, let look at like blood levels of aluminum. Right. And they'll, and, they'll, and they'll say things like, well, look how quickly aluminum is, you know, eliminated from the blood. And so therefore, you know, it, it's quickly eliminated, right? Once it's in the body, it's quickly eliminated, they'll say. But that's, that's another logical fallacy. It's a non sequitur. The conclusion does not follow from the premise because you're not considering the amount of aluminum that remains in the tissues or the organs where it accumulates. And, you know, mm-hmm. we know that uh, the aluminum particles from, from vaccines can be taken up by immune cells called macrophages and transported across the blood brain barrier and into the brain where the aluminum accumulates. In fact, even the study, the study that the FDA and CDC most heavily rely on to claim that aluminum safe acknowledges the fact that the aluminum accumulates in the brain, but they don't consider that. Like they, they don't consider that as part of the toxic body burden of aluminum. They just look at the blood and that's it. And they, and they totally ignore the amount of aluminum. And I, I think um, the study that you referred to uh, by James Lyons Weiler the one he just published recently uh, that's basically what they did they looked at they looked at the total body burn the way it should have been done originally and and then they then they calculated um you know the exposure from from vaccines compared to you know for example you know ingestion and things and, and they look at the, you know the, the actual absorbed amount of aluminum and, and the body burden of toxicity and they show that essentially children are being poisoned uh, you know, there's this aluminum toxicity. It's a, it's a, and, and again, Chris actually also has written about this and saying how that is an acute exposure to aluminum. Any time, any vaccine, aluminum containing vaccine is an acute aluminum exposure. Um, mm. Meaning that yes, uh, you know, aluminum is a known neurotoxin and it has toxic effects even at very low doses. You know, and we're always told, told that, oh, well, it's not toxic in vaccines because the dose is so low. Well, that's just not true. <laughs> and and, and that, that's actually we're we're talking about hard numbers now as well. You know, I mean, this yes. is not we're not even talking absorption rates, just just purely numbers. You know, someone uh, published a, a, a pretty shocking map the other day of um, a, based on the different schedules. So this was a Canadian map, and so what they did was they went province by province, and they said, hey, based on the schedule that's been adopted by that particular province, how much aluminum total has been injected into you by, I forget what the age was, by the age of six or by the age of eight or something to that effect. And, you know, it was crazy. I mean, co- compared to what's considered an acceptable amount, it's it's way higher. Well, that, <laughs> that gets into why thimerosal was removed from most childhood vaccines. Um, because in 1999, uh, up until 1999, of course, you know, throughout the, the 90s and the 80s, they were adding more and more vaccines to the schedule, the CDC was. Uh, but nobody in government had ever bothered to ask the question of, you know, what the health impact of that would be, given the fact that so many vaccines contain mercury. And nobody had ever done the calculations within the government until 1999 when the FDA was charged by Congress with the task of, uh, you know, looking at, you know, their health concerns related to mercury exposure. Um, you know, just from all, all, all sources of exposure, mm-hmm. of course, you know, coal plants, you know, emit mercury and, um, that's why it's in fish. You're not, we're not supposed to eat, women are told don't, don't eat too much fish, right? Like pregnant women, uh, because, because of the mercury contamination, but it's safe to get a flu shot, which still contains <laughs> mercury, right? <laughs> oh um, man. But, but anyhow, back in 1999, the FDA was so that, you know, they just, they just 
queried the vaccine manufacturers about the, the mercury content, you know, which vaccines contain thimerosal and, and you know, in, in what amounts. And the FDA finally got around to doing the calculations uh, and, and, and figured that, that the, the cumulative levels of mercury that children were being exposed to by the CDC's schedule exceeded the EPA's own safety guidelines for, for mercury exposure. And this this is, again, I just want to drive this point home. We're, we're talking about all sources of exposure, right? So a lot of that would be ingested as well, right? Right. That, that, um, that doesn't even consider, right? That doesn't even, that's just from the vaccines. That doesn't even consider the amount of environmental aluminum that, you know, a typical child in the U.S. might be exposed to from other sources. Hmm. You know, that, so that's very narrowly looking at the question. And so, yeah, when you when you add to that, when you consider also mercury exposure from other sources, which is already too high, you know, added to the exposure from vaccines, you know, that then <laughs> you get into a whole whole different realm with the data. Well, and, and I think this this sort of, you know, we've you've touched on it very briefly here, but this brings into focus the next um, elephant in the room, which is the CDC schedule. You know, I mean, you know, you hear this all the time online, you know, I'm 60 years old and I got vaccinated and look, I'm fine. You, you know, what's what what's the problem? And I think people are yep. really overlooking the fact that we've gone from, and I don't know the numbers, I think it's 72 now by the, 72. By the, age, by the age of 18. And I don't know, I think it was like six, five, it's five or six. It's 72, yeah. In terms of doses, so the MMR, for example, is a combination vaccine, it's three vaccines in one. So um, you, you know, a lot of people consider that all a vaccine, but it's really three vaccines in one. Hmm. Um, and so uh, DTaP is another one, the diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis vaccine. These are combination vaccines. So if you look at the total uh, number of vaccine doses, um, yeah, I think it's 14 or 16 different vaccines that children get, like 72 plus doses uh, of that number of vaccines by the time they're 18. With, with the most of them, with most of them, you know, in the younger childhood. Um, and in exposure, they were looking at that. They were looking at the infant exposure, I believe. Um, they didn't even look at older childhood. Mm. And, and it, just the number of vaccines over time has increased so much. Do you feel like the way that we're making vaccines now? I mean, um, I I'm, I don't know. It's a question. Or have they changed? Like the way that we make them now, are they different, or are we still making them the same way that we made them, you know, sixty years ago? Well, the technology has evolved, you know, a bit over time. For example, you know, like the DTP vaccine, for example, um, you know, they, they used what was called the whole cell pertussis component, um, which basically they took the, you know, the whole cell of, of the bacteria and, you know, they weakened it, they, they killed it, um, but, you know, but it was still, it still had the, uh, you know, the, like the proteins that would cause the immune reaction. Mm. Um and so, but the whole cell, that, that was one of the vaccines that was causing a lot of, you know, injuries where, where the, the companies were being sued for DTP vaccine injuries. Hmm. Uh, and so they developed, um, you know, in what's called an acellular pertussis vaccine, where they just take certain um, antigen components of the, the bacteria and they include those to the whole cell. Um, you know, so there, it's not necessarily a change in technology, just a change in how they manufacture things. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, that's one of the things that's striking in the science is, you know, we're, we're told vaccines are safe and effective. And then but you go into the, the science and they're talking about how we need new vaccines because the old ones, well, guess what? <laughs> they're not so safe or they're not so effective or, or, or both. Um, you know, the, the flu shot is a good example of that, you know, where you go into the literature and the, there's all kinds of talk about the need for what they call a universal flu shot because 
the existing influenza vaccines are so highly ineffective. <laughs> Aren't they negatively affected? I think I read that somewhere recently. It's like it, it's it's actually like a forty four percent negative rate. Like in terms of you're more likely to get injured or have some kind of complication with last the se- last season's influenza vaccine had a negative effectiveness against the H three N two influenza virus. So uh, according to, uh, just, according just... to the CDC's own data. <laughs> wow. Uh, so yes, in other words, if you got the flu shot, you had an increased risk of being infected with that particular strain, which happened to be the strain that came about toward the end of the season that was causing so much morbidity. So, you know, causing people to be hospitalized um, and, you know, potentially causing death. Wow. But but the, the, the flu shot, I mean, itself, I think this year's flu shot, so we're talking now um, early 2020, uh, I think it was only nine, 9% effective, if I'm not mistaken. And usually it hovers between the, around the 40% mark, 40 to 50% effective. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's generally quite low. I mean, less than 50%, yeah. you know, in, in, in an average year. Uh, the, the Cochrane collaboration, again, in their systematic, the most, the most recent one, in, in 2010, they estimated it took 100 um, people to be vaccinated to prevent one case of the flu. Oh, wow. Uh, the, more, the more recent one in 2018, I think the number was uh, 71. So the, it's called the NNT, the number needed to treat, or in this case, the number needed to vaccinate. Um, so, it, you know, you have to vaccinate 71 uh, healthy adults in order for, for one of those adults um, to to have a to see a benefit from it. <laughs> so would, would, wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't people use that as a as a reason to then vaccinate people? Well, uh, if you the way I like to look at that is you know so for every seventy one people who are, are vaccinated, seventy of them are unnecessarily exposing you know unnecessarily right. exposing themselves to harm from the vaccine mm, mm. Uh, and harms from the flu shots you know over the years because every year is a different vaccine. They manufacture it differently. It has different antigen components every year. And they're guessing, basically. There's no time every season from the time that they decide what's going to, how they're going to manufacture the vaccine to the time they put it on the market. There's no time to do clinical trials, mm. right? And so what's happened is, is certain vaccines over the years have caused serious problems. So, for example, the, the 1976, um, uh, I think it was the swine flu pandemic, uh, that the, the PH1, and well, I forget the the strain, but uh, that that particular vaccine was um, associated with an increased risk of what's called Guillain-Barré, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a paralytic disease that re- resembles polio. Um, so people become paralyzed. Um, in, in Europe, one of the influenza one of the influenza pandemic influenza vaccines was associated with uh, narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder where essentially wow. you, you know your part of your brain that kind of um, you know, regulates the sleep-wake cycle. It just becomes uh, dysfunctional and people, you know, driving at the wheel will fall asleep or, you know, in the middle of an office meeting or something, they fall asleep and they just, they have uncontrollable sleepiness. Um, so that's narcolepsy. Uh, um, in, in Australia, uh, one of the, one of those um, influenza vaccines uh, was, was withdrawn with one flu season. The, the, the campaign ended because uh, it was causing so many cases of, of febrile seizures among ch- children. Oh, wow. It, there are there is a record of harms from influenza vaccines and again the, the thing is it's kind of a, a crapshoot every season because it, the, the vaccine is manufactured anew every season it's a different vaccine manufacturer uh, oh. and so uh, the 2009 2010 seasons influenza vaccine has been associated with an increased risk of uh of of miscarriage among pregnant women is another another example 
Wow. Yeah, you know, the list keeps keeps on going on. And, and right. the, the irony of all of this is that we're told that out of all of the shots that you could possibly get, the flu shot is the safest, right? Because it's just a flu shot. Um, flu shot is, among all the vaccines, is um, reported the most to the adverse um, event reporting system. And um, I don't think most people know that, to, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I just drive down the street in my town and there's literally signs on the road outside the, the drugstore. You know, free flu shot. Come on in. You, you know, it's, it's, I think people, yeah, that's, one of the benign, you know? people are, that's what actually one of the problems is if people are administering the flu shot and they don't know how to administer it properly. And so that's causing a lot of like shoulder injuries. That's actually the number one <laughs> oh, wow. um, adverse event that's reported to VAERS under, for flu shots is, is shoulder injuries because they're not being administered properly. Oh man! <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I know. Um, so, so I, I know there's there's probably a question that is on everyone's mind since it's happening right now, and I I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, so just feel free to share as much as you know. But this whole uh, coronavirus um, outbreak that's currently going on right now, coming out of China, what's what 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 is what's your take on that, and what do you know so far? Well, I honestly haven't followed that very closely. Just <laughs> okay, so which is totally cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's but it's one of those things. You know, obviously it's on my radar, but I just I haven't had time to really dig into into that and look at it very closely. Um, just because I've been so busy with other things, um, I just put out a pretty major article uh, on the on the measles um, issue and, and just responding to a New York Times article that, that's providing a risk benefit analysis of measles. So I haven't haven't really um it really followed that very closely. Okay. Um, but, you know, my take on it just immediately from without even knowing, you know, too much of the details is, you know, we, we there's always, you know, these periodic scares, right? I mean, with SARS, with, with pandemic um, influenza viruses, and I just noticed on Netflix <laughs> the other day, yep. <laughs> there's, that, there's that Netflix series, you know, that, that movie or it's actually uh, about, you know, the, the flu pandemic. And the thing is, is we're supposed to believe that a, a flu pandemic is, is like more deadly than the seasonal flu, but it's, um, historically not. In fact, 1918, which they always cite, was yeah. an outlier. You know, it was unusual in the sense that, you know, that the mortality was so high. But uh, there's, there's been a study done looking at, at influenza pandemics over the years. And in, typically the pandemics are, are less, <laughs> um, you know, less harmful than the, just the, the regular seasonal flu, um, as an example. And, 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 you know, part of the problem is you have agencies like the World Health Organization, which have conflicts of interests, and, and you know they like they were really responsible in many ways in hyping pan, like the the pandemic. Uh, I think it was in two thousand nine. Uh, you know, and just causing this mass public scare to get people vaccinated. Right. Um, but then you know, then of course it, they the public finds out that you know, the people involved in, in that who policy were were you know had ties to the industry and and, and all these conflicts of interests and things, and so you know that's the first thing that it is I'm I'm wary of and cautious of is is how serious really is the threat to begin with because yeah. they have a tendency and of course the media likes to hype the threat and I'm not saying that in this case the coronavirus is not a serious threat I'm I'm just saying initially without having the data in front of me um, that's my I'm skeptical. Of, of any time one of one of these threats come around yeah and i i think you know you're i think you're right to be skeptical i mean i have been looking into it and i definitely don't want to spread any sort of misinformation because i don't have all the answers at this point i don't think anyone does right. but i think you're right in terms of you know the the fear-mongering um and and the overinflation of the issue 
when you look at the numbers, you know, so you look at the numbers like now, I mean, headline news, right? We, this was in Canada, like literally yesterday, I think, or the day before, um, you know, we, we have a, a, a possible case. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, right. it's a poss- possible case confirmed. I think it was worded like that. And right. it's like, they haven't even got the results back yet. They don't even know if it's real, but it's one person that could potentially have it. But right. that's headline news, media alerts. You know, it's like your phone is blowing up because of it. And, you know, again, yes. you know, not to downplay anything, but I think when you look at the numbers of people that have been infected, someone did publish these stats. You know, first of all, the, the larger population in China, I mean, 1.4 billion people. You look at the amount of people that have been infected at time of recording, I think it's around 4,000 people. You know, and then you just keep going down, down, down from there, and the 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 mortality rate is actually very, very low. And um, and as you pointed out, you know, a lot of people have said what you've said. You know, they're like, okay, it's this is typical for pandemics, um, if it is even a pandemic at this point. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what comes of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I definitely, you know, I've started to see that there are conflicts of interests for sure, um, but. Well, that's one thing I did notice is that there, I, I saw a, a patent for a, a attenuated coronavirus. So they had patented the, essentially the vaccine technology. <laughs> so, so that, that technology is there and they're just waiting for, you know, a, a use for it to be able to profit from that, that technology. Right. So yeah. that's another I'll, factor. I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from uh, commenting any further just because there's some pretty crazy stuff that's going on in the background that uh, mm-hmm. I would like to get more information on before um, speaking on it. Um, right. One last thing just before you go, because I've heard you speak about this on other podcasts and I want to just really bring things back together about this larger, um, you know, the sort of propaganda side of things. And you explained it so well on another podcast. So I, I want to get your take on this, but the, the whole idea um, you know, vaccines don't cause autism, right? That's like the big elephant in the room. Everyone talks about it. Right. Um, and of course, you know, the person whose name always comes up is Dr. Andy Wakefield. Um, and everyone will just go straight back to, when was it, 1998, whenever it was. Yes. And just say, oh, well, it was debunked in 1998 and end of conversation, it doesn't cause autism. So perhaps you can sort of, right. how did that even come about? Um, what work was he doing? You know, perhaps sort of unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. Actually, just to to kind of segue into that from our prior conversation mm-hmm. about the CDC schedule, um, the CDC schedule. This is one of the things in terms of safety. You know, safety studies. Um, there are no studies that have that have examined the CDC's schedule and its a, and its effect on health outcomes. Um, so you know, there's study like there's studies on individual vaccines, but there are no studies on, on to the cumulative effects of of all the, the vaccines administered according to the CDC's recommendations. Um, and so without that type of study, you know, they're relying on observational studies, again, which we already discussed mm-hmm, some of the problems mm-hmm. with observational studies. Uh, and, and just to give a really clear example of, of, uh, of what's called a selection bias in an observational study is, is a study came out in 2015 that confirmed that, that parents of children with an older child who has autism, with the, with the, the younger child, with younger siblings, they don't vaccinate for MMR at the same rate. So parents, you know, with it, with the, the older sibling has has autism, younger sibling, uh, there's a, a less a decreased rate of vaccination is, among is them. Is this and because just, of genetics, like the genetic well, side of things? Well, and so yeah, the parents recognize that there might be a genetic vary. You know, there's a, a genetic mm-hmm. variable. Obviously, it is strongly, um, you know, in in many ways, we were told that it's a genetic disease a lot of times, and and that's 
untrue. It's mm-hmm. and then genetics is a factor, but the environment is a, is another huge factor. And so there are invent, environmental factors as well in the um, development of autism. And so you know, parents recognizing that there might that a risk might run in their family since the older child has autism, they're less likely to to do the MMR vaccine with the younger child. Um, and so what this creates a selection bias, a healthy vaccinee bias, essentially, where you get, um, it's not, you know, it's not, you can't interpret the results of, you know, for example, if they did a, they compared cohorts of children who received the MMR vaccine with children who didn't, um, and drawing the conclusion that, oh, look, uh, you know, the, the um, children who got the MMR vaccine are not at an increased risk of, of, of autism. Well, that's an invalid conclusion. And the, the valid conclusion would be, oh, look, uh, children who get the MMR vaccine are less are, are um, or, I'm sorry, children who who skip the MMR vaccine are more likely to be you know diagnosed with autism. So they're pooled within the you know the, the quote unquote mm. unvaccinated cohort, and so that's a selection bias that that you know um, invalidates the conclusion that that there's no greater risk for children who receive the vaccine. Just to kind of give an you know just an example, mm-hmm. and so they're relying on these observational studies. And in fact, the CDC. Um, uh, looks at, you know, the, the, the on its website, vaccines do not cause autism is the claim it makes in the headline on its website. And they cite a number of observational studies plus an Institute of Medicine review that pointed out that observational studies cannot exclude the hypothesis. And so getting to the question about the 1998 study, um, that whole narrative is false. The whole narrative is false. So first of all, that study never claimed to have found a causal link between the MMR vaccine and autism. In fact, they explicitly stated that they did not show a causal association and that further studies are required. They simply, they simply hypothesized that there might be a link based on the reporting from parents and the doctors, you know, of, of concerns about the fact that their children regressed following the MMR vaccine vaccination. And so it was the parents were reporting this, you know, this, this temporal association with, you know, the vaccine and regression into autism. And, you know, the claim that that's the origins of parental concerns about mm. autism is, is falsified just by that alone, just by what they say in the study itself, is that, it, that, that, that that was coming from the parents and the doctors, right? Um, but, you know, just to falsify that even further, you can go back to 1991 and the Institute of Medicine had a review in 1991 that, guess what? talked about the parental concern that vaccines might cause autism. And they, they were looking at the DTP vaccine again, the one that was causing so many problems and hmm. kind of led to that 1986 law in many ways. The other, the other big one was the oral polio vaccine, which was causing cases of paralysis. Um, and this, so they switched to the, the inactivated uh, vaccine. But uh, yeah, so they were looking at the DTP vaccine. And, 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 and you know, of course, they, they concluded that there was no evidence to support the hypothesis that that vaccine causes autism. But, you know, that was unsurprising given the fact that no studies had ever been done to test that hypothesis. <laughs> right? right, 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 right. Um, so so ju- just, if I can just, just interject just for our listeners here and so that I'm clear on understanding this, you know, the, the, the autism, you know, vaccines cause autism narrative. I think a lot of people believe that it stems from the whole Andy Wakefield 1998 Eight, like yeah. that era but what you're saying is that it actually is it, the, the concerns were there long before the, the, the concerns were there the, the concerns pre-existed the study and they would exist today if that study had never been published 
Okay. Okay. Great. So yeah, continue. Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the point I'm making is that that's not the origin of the concern. And that's not, I mean, you can totally just disregard that study and, and parents would still be concerned about vaccines causing autism because guess what? Vaccines are following the CDC recommendations and they're witnessing their children regress into autism uh, after vaccinations. Uh, the, 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 the federal government has acknowledged that vaccines can cause brain damage as symptoms of autism. Under the VICP, there was a famous case um, with a girl named Hannah Poling who received nine vaccine doses at once uh, at something like 19 months of age, uh, and, and she regressed into diagnosed autism. And her family received compensation under the VICP for a table injury, which is encephalopathy, um, which refers to any type of brain dysfunction or damage disorder, um, including uh, encephalitis, which is brain inflammation. Uh, and so her family was compensated and the government acknowledged that because she had a, an underlying mitochondrial dysfunction, she had a mitochondrial disorder, um, which exacerbated, you know, so she had got a fever basically. And the CDC director at the time, uh, Julie Gerberding, who incidentally went on to work for Merck after her, her stint at the CDC, um, she acknowledged at the time on, on CNN that, yeah, vaccines, we all know that vaccines can cause fever and sometimes fever in children with mitochondrial disorders can set off some damage uh, in manifesting as symptoms of autism. Wow. And then that was what the court had, had determined in, in, in awarding compensation to, to her family. Um, so hmm. this, is a, this is on the record. Government has acknowledged that. Yeah. The CDC's own head of vaccine safety in an interview, I think, in 2018, just a couple of years ago, I acknowledged that, yeah, it's a possibility that vaccines might cause autism in genetically susceptible children. And he goes on to say that the problem is we don't know who those children might be because it's very hard to figure out what the risk factors are. Right. And that that is the point. You know, I mean, you, you just perfect segue into what I'm thinking right now, which is we're we're staring mandatory vaccination down the barrel of a gun right now. Yes. And, 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 and having listened to our conversation for an hour and a half, having listened to probably on this podcast alone, a collective eight hours of conversation with experts, with people who are, have researched the stuff, that, that is the thing that I keep coming back to. You know, it's, I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of vaccination personally. Right. But but based on everything that we know, and forget about the conspiracy theories or anything like that, based on the fact that we know there are injuries, we know those injuries are underreported, we know that compensation is underreported, we know that we don't have a lot of safety studies, and the safety studies we do have are fundamentally flawed, and the list goes on and on, mm -hmm. how the hell are we looking at, at mandating these vaccines? And this is a global situation that's happening right now, not just in North America. Yeah, uh, there's, you know, what happened in Samoa is the government declared an emergency and, and mandated vaccination in, um, in the Maldives. Um, there was a bill, I don't know if it's been passed or not, but uh, there was a bill to mandate vaccination so children would be forced to receive all the vaccines, you know, recommended by the government agencies, which, by the way, includes the DTP vaccine, which, again, is associated with an increased risk of childhood mortality. Um, and so they're mandating these vaccines. Um, and this is a movement. And, and, and the scary thing about that is that that, that, was, that bill was hailed by the United Nations um, Children's Fund uh, as, you know, like a pro as progress. Well, you know, essentially it would outlaw informed consent. That's what the bill would do. It would outlaw informed consent. And so the outlaw the exercise of, of informed consent, you know, assuming that 
the choice that a parent might want to make m- might be to not strictly comply with the you know the the government schedule. Uh, and so that's 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 what we're up against right now is we're up against it's um, we're in a fight for our health and our freedom right now. Yeah, people aren't just aren't aware of, of what's going on. You know, people are being told vaccines are safe and effective. And there's no there's no legitimate reason not to strictly comply with the CDC schedule. Well, I mean that's ludicrous. I mean, the, the legitimate reasons to question uh, the, the CDC schedule and to choose for a parent to choose not to strictly comply. I mean, look at the hepatitis B vaccine. They don't do it in, in Britain. And you know why? Because <laughs> uh, uh, or there was the, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of the the, uh, the varicella vaccine, the chickenpox. They don't do it in Britain because the government on its own website states the reason why they don't do that. They basically, you know, in, in other words, they don't put it in quite these words, but, you know, they say, well, the U.S. is doing this experiment <laughs> where, where, you know, that might actually cause a shift in the risk burden towards older people who, with whom, you know, it, the, the virus poses a greater risk of potentially deadly complications. So it might not be a good idea. And so they're kind of waiting things out to see how it goes. <laughs> you know? So that, you know, there's a legitimate reason not to do the, you know, not for, for mass to avoid mass vaccination for varicella, uh, the hepatitis B vaccine is another one that just jumps immediately to mind. Where you know there's definitely a legitimate concern of parents are being told that that they should vaccinate their child their child and that day one, regardless of whether the mother is a carrier. This is this is a huh. virus that's primarily transmitted through sexual intercourse or through shared needles among drug users. You know, I mean, so it's so for parents to, to kind of question that and wonder like, well, what really is the necessity of me giving aluminum you know uh, among other things and and uh, you know what's the purpose of that if the mother's not a carrier and there's no close um household contacts that are carriers then you know what is the point of that vaccine and how right. I mean, you know, how, how does the risk benefit analysis really work out there uh and uh, and the, re- the cdc's reason for recommending that is, is basically because they were having a hard time getting the target populations of high-risk individuals high-risk adults uh, to to get the vaccine and so to increase vaccination rates, they said, well, we're not going to give people the choice anymore. We're just going to recommend that every infant, you know, universally get the shot. Um, and, you, know, you, just, you could go on and on and on with legitimate the legitimate um, you know questions parents have and legitimate reasons parents have not to strictly comply. Uh, and the fact that the, the media just won't acknowledge this and the government just won't acknowledge this that yes, there are legitimate concerns about vaccine safety and vaccine effectiveness. And, and if that right there is just so striking, just the refusal to even acknowledge the legitimacy of you know, really science-based, hardcore data-based uh, concerns. Yeah. Well, and then when you, when, when you double down with that, you know, we haven't even spoken about it. We've obviously touched on it and, and I don't want to get into it, but you know, there's still a, a, a huge, um, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, it is a majority actually, the large majority of people still believe that unvaccinated people pose a major threat to to the world, but also to their vaccinated children and themselves. Right. right. And, and that, that, I mean, just right out the gates, it's just like, so you acknowledge that the vaccines don't work then. Is that what we're <laughs> talking about? Or like, how do you come to that point of reasoning? I just don't, I don't get it. You well, know? What, what they'll say is that, you know, it's required for herd immunity. So the people who can't get the vaccine are protected. So infants, for example, too, too young to get the vaccine, they're still protected through herd immunity. The problem is that most of the vaccines don't confer any kind of herd immunity. You know, the, the pertussis vaccine, for example, you know, we're told, you know, they're still telling people to get the vaccine, you know, to cocoon families, to protect infants, you know, but the problem is they, they, they know 
that that vaccine doesn't prevent transmission of the bacteria. Uh, and it, so, in fact, it might increase the risk to, to infants because older children who are getting the vaccine can be, um, you know, those children who do get the vaccine are less likely to be symptomatic. And right. so, you know, they, they don't know. asymptomatic carriers, basically, right? Where if they, were, if they were unvaccinated, you know, the child would be more likely to have symptoms. And then, they, you know, the family would realize, well, we need to keep, you know, Johnny away from the baby. <laughs> Right. And so they're eight, but they're asymptomatic carriers. And so, you know, there's actually increased risk to the infants because the, the families aren't even aware that, that, that the, the, you know, the bacteria is circulating amongst the, the family. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, this goes for elderly folks as well, right? Getting the shots and then uh, visiting, you know, visiting newborn babies. Um, right. And they and, think they're protected and they're, they're, right. that there's this human herd immunity and, and there's no herd immunity for that vaccine. And, and, uh, I mean, we could even talk about measles and herd immunity, but you know, that's another hour and a half. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. Like I, I've, I've spoken about, I've spoken about the topic of herd immunity. So for those of you listening out there, you know, if you want to go back and check out some other episodes, you know, I, I've spoken at length about it, which is why I didn't want to um, take up more of your time, Jeremy, and extend this into a, a four-hour um, <laughs> Joe Rogan-style marathon podcast. Um, so I, I think um, you know, I, let's let's actually just wrap it up there. And thank you so much for your time and and a great discussion. I, you know, of course, I do feel like we could probably chat for another two hours because there is so much to to talk about. But yes. I'm hoping that we, you know, f especially for our listeners to just sort of like, I hope that we hit a lot of the the, the key points, um, especially again, you know, we are talking about uh, mandatory vaccination. You know, it's happening, right? It's, it's, it's happening. It's happened in certain places. It's coming um, en masse now, which is you know, it's kind of frightening in light of what we've spoken about. And, yes. um, you know, so I just want to thank you for coming on the show and, and for also for being a voice out there, you know, and for taking your time and digging into the research and presenting it in a way that people can understand it. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, I'd like to thank you because uh, that's needed. You know, it's definitely necessary. Um, so thank you. And, and just for listeners who would like to follow my work, get, Please. You can, they can head to my website, uh, www jeremyrhammond.com. So I use my middle initial there, jeremyrhammond.com. And just, uh, there's a form right there on my homepage. Just sign up for my newsletter uh, and stay updated with my work. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm going to throw that link down into the show notes. Um, and of course, Jeremy, if there's any other place, um, whether that's Facebook or social media or anywhere else, um, you and I can just talk off air and I will put all of those things um, into the show notes uh, for this episode. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, Awesome. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed another episode. And uh, as always, if you did, um, please consider sharing this, uh, leaving us a review, subscribing, do it, doing whatever you can, essentially, um, to continue this conversation and to get important information out there uh, like this and to bring guests like Jeremy onto the show. So uh, thanks for tuning in and you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. Bye.